Thank you, Zach. Please stand as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. If you would, open your Bibles in the Old Testament again as we continue in Haggai. We'll be reading Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Again, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Pastor Chris is preaching this morning. His message is titled, The Best is Yet to Come. So again, follow along as I read Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you, When you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Bow your heads apparently, please, this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just acknowledging how great, how almighty you are, how wonderful you are, how powerful you are, and how loving you are. Thank you, Father, in this reminder how you are with us always. And help us to understand through this message that, Lord, there is so much still to come that is so great from you, Father. Just as you have so many wonderful things in our lives that you're doing, we can gather from this passage you have great things for us. I just ask that you be with Pastor Chris this morning. Give him the strength and the energy to speak. Just may your power be upon him as he shares your word with us, Father. Thank you for this time to be in your house, and thank you for bringing everyone here. On this uh, wintry day, Lord, we're grateful to be in your house. We seek you, Father. We thank you for what you have for us in your name. Amen. 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 I do appreciate that prayer. I have my, uh, my emergency uh, uh, medical things here. I've got tissues, cough drops, and water. So if, 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 uh, we'll see uh, just how long this message goes, and uh, you might see a miracle, me preaching a short message. Uh, but it will be a miracle, and it will have to be divine intervention. But uh, I'm glad to be looking at Haggai chapter 2. I hope you have your Bibles open, and I'm going to commit a uh, cardinal sin in preaching and start with a bunch of dates. And that's, you're just not supposed to do that. But you know what? I'm looking at Haggai. He's got four messages in this book, and every, book, every message begins with dates. So I figure, you know, if God can inspire his word to begin this way, we're going to begin this way. Let's look at the temple timeline. If you don't understand 
the history of the temple and how the work on the temple starts and then it stops. It starts and then it stops. Then you're not going to understand the message of Haggai. Pastor Bruce, who's on vacation, began last week saying the time is now to rise up and build. And if you look at, I've got all sorts of dates there (coughs) that you can go through and and kind of look at when this began. But I want you to see that this, this Zerubbabel guy, uh, which is just fun to say, Zerubbabel, it just like can keep going forever and you have to stop yourself. Uh, he begins work on the foundation of the temple back in 536 B.C., 536. But then within two years, work on the temple stops. And then for 12 more years, nothing is done. And that was the message last week that God had to raise up a prophet by the name of Haggai to come and say, the time is now to begin building. And that happens because in 522, Darius comes and uh, controls uh, Persia, which is then uh, controlling uh, the people of Israel. They are a conquered people. And he affirms the right of the returned remnant to rebuild the temple. So in 520 B.C., All of Haggai takes place in one year, 520 B.C., and it covers uh, (coughs) less than 14 weeks. So he has a very quick and uh, a very uh, powerful but very short ministry. And in 520 B.C., God raises him up on August the 29th. And Haggai's first message, as we learned last week, was to rise up and build. And then that message ends with verse 15. That's where we ended last week. Haggai 1, verse 15. And that tells us that on September 21st, the people began to rebuild less than four weeks later. Now, if you know anything about the prophets of Israel, you need to stop and go, whoa, man, Haggai is the man. Okay, these guys, think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, preached and preached and preached and preached for years and years and ends up getting sawed in two. For his efforts, never does see the change. Ezekiel, so many of these prophets never saw the people of God respond. But here's Haggai who preaches, hey, after 12 years and after the, actually it's almost over 60 years of neglect and 12 years since anything has been attempted, we need to get to work. And in less than four weeks, the people rise up and they start building. And that was last week's message. And that's just an amazing thing. Isn't that great? Wouldn't, I mean, can you remember what was preached four weeks ago? You know, much less are you applying it. Now, I hope you are, and, and that's a great reminder that just because this is unusual, it should be the norm for the people of God. When the man of God preaches the word of God, the people of God should rise up, hear it, and apply it, and that's exactly what these people did. And yet, here we come in chapter 2, verse 1, and it's October 17th. There's ways to figure out these dates, and... People brighter than I have done that, and I'm thankful. So what we find is Haggai's second message, which Randy just read to us, occurs on October 17th, which means that less than four weeks after starting the work, they need to be told to do what? Get back to work. Now that we can relate to, right? You, You can relate to that on many levels. So he comes on the scene, he preaches this powerful message, rise up, get to work, in less than four weeks, they're at it, and less than four weeks later, God says, uh, Haggai, uh, 
they're, they're laying down on the job again. They're discouraged. You need to get back out there. Now, the first message that Haggai preached in Haggai 1, God reflects what the people were thinking. Look at verse 2 again. God knows what we're thinking when we make our excuses for not being involved in the ministry of the Lord. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. He reflects what the people are thinking. God knows our excuses. He knows the excuses we make, and His Spirit and His Word calls it on it, calls us on it. Now, in the second message, God repeats what the people are saying. We saw that in verse 3. Now He's saying, I hear, I not only know what you're thinking, but I know what you're saying. And here's what you're saying. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this, not, is this not in your eyes as nothing? In other words, you've started the work, you've had four weeks into it, and you're already comparing it to the past and saying, you know what, this just doesn't compare. I don't know that it's worth my effort. Look at it, just look at it. Compared to that, compared to the past, it's nothing. And God says, I know what's going on. Now, let me give you a couple, just some background. Why do you think they, why did they stop so soon when they started so well? I mean, here's a group of people who were doing nothing for years. God comes on the scene through Haggai, says work. They get at it. They start so well, but they quit so soon. Let me give you a couple reasons that you might want to just jot down and think through. First of all, we know from last week's lesson the selfishness of their heart. They had misplaced priorities, and rather than focusing on the work of God, <coughs> the work of God, they wanted to focus on their own priorities and benefiting themselves. Secondly, the state of the temple site. I mean, here this temple site had been burned and destroyed by the Babylonians over 60 years earlier. It had been neglected, and before they could even start building, what were they going to have to do? You're going to have to clear the site out. You're going to have to remove the rubble. You're going to have to prepare it. And if you've ever done that, you know, it's kind of like washing your car. Just the effort to get ready to wash your car is discouraging enough to not then wash your car. And that's kind of the idea here. Man, they had so much preparatory work that they could get discouraged before they saw any results. They also had a shortage of resources. Look again at chapter 1, verse 8. God says to them to consider their ways, verse 8, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. In other words, go hack down some trees and come and build the temple. Well, when you compare that to the way this temple was originally built, and those of you that are reading through the Bible in 90 days, you've just read through how Solomon has built his temple. And there was David had laid up riches, gold, silver, so much bronze they didn't even weigh it. And silver, silver wasn't even important in those days. You know why? Because there was so much gold. Who wanted any silver? And so they had cedars from Lebanon coming down, and, and they had all these resources, and this remnant is looking around saying, look, we don't have any gold. We don't have any silver. We're a conquered people with limited resources, limited manpower, and limited everything, or so it seemed in their eyes, a shortage of resources. I think another reason why they got discouraged and quit so soon is the seeming absence of spiritual power. And this is very important for us to take note of. Think about when the, first, when the temple had been first built. Fire came down, sacred fire came down from heaven and lit the altar. There was no sacred fire from heaven they could see. 
No Shekinah glory. When the temple was first built, the Shekinah glory came in and dwelt that temple, so much so that the priests could not even enter in. They didn't see any Shekinah glory. There was no Ark of the Covenant anymore. That had been destroyed. That had been taken away uh, for uh, later raiders of the lost Ark to find. And, uh, and, and so that's gone. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne and the footstool of the Lord of hosts. They're thinking, why am I building this? We don't even have God's throne, God's footstool represented to put in it. No Urim and Thurim. And I still don't know what those two things are or who they are. But they hid in the breastplate of Joshua. Yeah, we have Joshua the high priest, but he doesn't have any Urim and Thurim there so that we can discern the will of God. They had no Davidic king to lead them as a free people in worship. Just Zerubbabel, who, yes, was a a descendant of David and the governor of Judah, but why was he that governor? Because Only because the Gentile king Darius appointed him to that and allowed him to do that. And so they're looking around and they're comparing it to the past and they're looking around what's going on. They're like, man, I don't see the visible presence and power of God. Why are we doing this? And then a fifth reason why they probably gave up so quickly is the, all the special days of Sabbath rest in the feast days that had happened. <coughs> Excuse me. In, this less, in less than four weeks, I want, this is a special time because notice in chapter 2 it says it's the 21st day of the seventh month. Now that means nothing to us, but if you were an Israelite, you knew that the seventh month of the Israel calendar was a time of a lot of worship, a lot of feast days, a lot of days of rest, and a lot of worship. Let me tell you what went on in just the last uh, less than four weeks that they had started to build. They had already had three Sabbath days where no work could be done. On the first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. It was another day of worship and rest. On the tenth day of the seventh month was the High Day, the Day of Atonement. Another day of worship and rest. On the 15th day of the seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that wasn't one day. That was seven days. And you not only worshipped, you left your home, and everybody gathered in Jerusalem. So all the remnant, all the people that are scattered, it's not a lot, but they're scattered all over. They come to Jerusalem, and then they build tents or booths or tabernacles. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would live in these tents, and they're camping out for a week. So, you know, no work's being done there. And what they were supposed to be doing in those weeks is they were remembering the past when Israel had been taken out of bondage and taken into the wilderness, and they didn't have anything, and they were just living in tents, and they weren't in the promised land, they didn't have houses. By the way, remember, these people have been building these houses. And they're just living, and who are they depending on? They're depending on God. He's their only source. The cloud by day, the fire by night, the manna coming down, the water coming out of the rock. All they had was God's presence, God's power, God's spirit, and the promises of God's word. And they were supposed to spend seven days hanging out and remembering, we have houses now, we're in the land now. We have material things now. Maybe not a lot. We're a remnant people, a conquered people, but we have material goods. And God wanted them to remember in those seven days, listen, I am all you need. And remember where 
you came from. And remember who your ultimate provider is. Well, they're out there doing this, and the 21st day, which is the day when our message takes place, is the seventh day (coughs) of that celebration. It's the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles, which just happened to fall on the exact day that Solomon's glorious temple was dedicated so many years earlier. Are you getting this picture? So they've been starting, stopping, worshiping, doing what God wants them to do. They've been remembering the past, and on the very day of the climax, they're thinking back to when that temple was dedicated. All the gold, all the silver, the Shekinah glory, the fire from heaven, all that was there, the Ark of the Covenant, everything was there. And you had Solomon, son of David, in his wealth and his wisdom, and then they look at what they've done in four weeks. A battered foundation. So small, so insignificant. And they said, what's the use? Compared to what was, this is nothing in our eyes. You see, the people were there gathered looking at the sorry start to the rebuilding process and they could not help but reflect on the past. This was one of the main purposes of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were living out in these tents to remember the past. The problem is they were drawing the wrong conclusions from their past history. And so God sends Haggai to stand in their midst before the temple foundation. He's standing right there. Maybe he's even standing on it. I don't know, but he's right there. And and he gives them the word of the Lord of hosts. Let's look again at verses 2 through 3. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah. Speak to the leader and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Speak to the spiritual leader and to the remnant of the people. Speak to them all. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, depending on how far I get with my voice, let me give you the big idea so at least you know what the whole message is about. The big idea of Haggai's second message is this. Sum up these nine verses in one sentence. If we focus too much on the past, we may miss what God is doing in the present and forget that the best is yet to come in the future. Now, there's a principle from the Word of God that you can take home and you can apply it in so many areas in your life. If you focus too much on the past, we may miss what God is doing in the present and forget that the best is yet to come in the future. You see, for, it's very easy for us to be this way. Do you agree? You know, shake your head. So I, so I know I'm, I'm on the right track. It's easy for us to be here. And uh, last week, uh, Gwen and I, as you know, celebrated 20 years here at Glenwood. And the longer you stay in one place, the longer you can see these patterns. I remember when I first came to Glenwood, I would hear talk of the glory days of the past. And there's still some of you here that can remember that. Just like in, in Haggai's time, which of you were there then? Which of you can remember this? Of a whole fleet of buses, of door-to-door visitation, of... Hundreds of children of all ages gathered to hear the gospel proclaimed. 
of rodeo days with live animals back when there weren't lawsuits and insurance wasn't an issue. And the world's largest Sunday made out of a long piece of gutter, which I understood that you had to make sure you were at the top of it because all these kids were slurping and snotting and, and blowing into this uh, thing. So if you got down at the bottom, it wasn't a good thing to be eating. You didn't know what you were eating. Goldfish swallowing and, and much, much more, the glory days. Now, I could not completely relate to those glory days because they had long since passed when I came here in 1990. But then God did a new and a fresh work, and I saw God do glorious things in my present, which was then in the 90s. And maybe some of you, and probably more of you, were a part of that, and maybe you have just heard about them. You're new enough that they are old glory days to you. A whole group of people dedicated to discipling others with the Word of God and with their lives, of mission campaigns to places all over the world, of notebooks filled with principles from God's Word, uh, lining your bookshelves, of building, uh, of late night fellowship oh, after almost every service uh, at Taco Bell down here at, at NKC. Uh, but guess what? That's all in the past. That was the 90s, and we're now in over a decade into a new millennium. And, and, and here's the reality. Those are glory days of the past. And just like then, God is saying to us, hey, you think about that, and you think about this, maybe you're thinking, wow, it's nothing compared to those glory days. But let me say this to you. We all have glory days that we can look back on as a church. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing that that little remnant did so long ago in Jerusalem. You see, your, your glory days may not be my glory days, but you all have glory days. And we begin to look at the past rather than looking to the future. We begin to live in the past rather than living in the present. We begin to long for the past rather than longing for the presence and the power of the Lord right here, right now, right in our midst. And if we're not careful... We can lose heart for the work of God that He has put before us right here, right now, and we can stop working in the present because it doesn't compare to the past. Now, am I preaching? Are you with me? We can totally forget about the more glorious future because we are fearful that it will never measure up to our memories of the past. And it's not just churches that long for the glory days in the past. Marriages have glory days, don't they? Marriages in the past that seem so much better than compared to the present, a present that's now filled with kids, God bless them, with inflation, God bless them, and with busy schedules. And you can long for the glory days when things were simpler, uh, less expensive, and less complicated. We, maybe your glory days are, are before you were married. <laughs> now I'm getting on dangerous ground, aren't I? Maybe your glory days is back when you were single. Man, I remember when I was single. I could do what I wanted to do, go where I wanted to go, give my time to the Lord. Now, and this is an honest thing for people that love the Lord, now I have all these things pulling at me, and I just don't feel I have the time to give to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of those glory days. Maybe your glory days... We're back when you were right with the Lord, before you began to drift away from God, and before you dropped out of ministry. 
Maybe your glory days are, 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 are back when uh, you actually invested in the building up of this church, the people of God. When I say this church in this message, I don't mean this building. I mean the people that are around you, building people, reaching the lost, discipling the saved, training and raising up leaders. Back in those glory days when you really gave yourself to that, maybe before a relational break, breakup totally threw you off, maybe before a secret sin got entangled in your heart and life and you slowly drifted away. You see, maybe that for some of you, your glory days were back when you were younger and you had more energy and you visited the doctor far less than you do now. Here's the point that God is trying to make this morning, and it's this. If we focus too much on the past, we may miss what God is doing in the present and forget that the best is yet to come in the future. It does not matter how glorious or inglorious your past may be. God has a work for you to do this morning, right here, right now. And your future in Christ, if you will place your faith in Christ or if you are a believer in Christ, I promise you this morning, your future is far more glorious than the most glorious day of your past. And we've got to turn our eyes from the past onto that more glorious future and get busy here in the present. Amen? Now, how can that be? How can we do that? How can you and I be set free of our past to do the work of God He has for us in the present and so we can experience an even more glorious future? Well, in these nine verses, God Almighty, and I say that because He's called the Lord of hosts numerous times in this passage, numerous times in the book of Haggai, the Lord of hosts. And all that means is the Lord who is over all the armies of heaven, all the armies of earth, God Almighty. And here's what he gives us in this passage. God Almighty, the one we sang about in these choruses, the ruler over all, the glorious one. Here's what he gives us. Three steps to take in order to be set free from your past and enjoy the best that's yet to come. So here's, here's what we got to do. The best is yet to come when we, number one, release the past. We've got to release the past. And that's what verses... 1 through 3 are all about. Now, here's what he says to them. He says in verse 3, basically what he's saying in verse 3 is he asks them questions, but the purpose of the questions is so that they will release the reality of the past. And so I want to give you three principles. There's probably many more, but I want to show you three ways that the past gets in the way of the present. And I'm applying this, as Haggai is, to the building up of this church. You can apply it to your marriage. You can apply it to your work. You can apply it to any area of your life. Here's three ways that the past gets in the way of the present. First of all, when we try to live in the past rather than the present. The past gets in the way of the present when we try to live in the past rather than in the present. This is what God's trying to get the senior citizens of the remnant to realize. Now, I'm not picking on you senior citizens. I'm just saying when he asked the question, who of you remember the first temple? You had to be at least 70 or 80 to do that. And they were, they were dropping quick. They were, they were being eliminated. They, you, had to be very, you had to be in your 70s or 80s to have lived through the entire 70-year uh, uh, captivity 
to remember what the temple used to be like. And so he's calling out those people, and he's saying to them, look, you cannot live in the past because it's the past and it's not the present. You say, well, how did this happen? Well, it happened in 536 B.C., 16 years earlier. Remember I said Zerubbabel started the work 16 years earlier, and he laid the foundation, he laid the altar. We'll turn back to Ezra chapter 3. Turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3, and I want you to see what had happened 16 years earlier, and it was happening again as they rebuilt the work. Look at Ezra chapter 3. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. And this is the same Zerubbabel who tried it 16 years earlier. You talk about discouraging. This guy remembers. Look at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They had started a rebuilding new beginning. Woo! Let's get excited. They were rejoicing. But look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father houses, who were old men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So they make a beginning Uh, 16 or so years earlier, and they started, and there's great rejoicing. We're starting to rebuild. But then the senior saints who had seen the previous temple, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, and they're saying, oh, no, because it wasn't like the glory days of the past. Well, the same thing is happening here again. And and, And God is calling them out and saying, look, you've got to release the past in order to live in the present. Now, here's what some of them were trying to do. Yeah, and some of us do this. When you focus on the past and, and then try to move into the future, what do you end up doing? I mean, this is how some of us move into the future. Man, I remember how it was back then. I remember how, whoa, what are you going to do? You're going to stumble over the present. The way you move into the future is you've got to release the past and then you've got to face the future and move into it. You simply can't walk back to the future. Second way the past gets in the way of the present is number two, when we tend to glorify the past as being better than it really was. Now, we all do this, don't we? We glorify the past as better than it really was. I mean, there's just something about, I think of college days, and yet if I, you know, I think, man, those were the greatest days. I think of seminary, and whoa, man, I got trained, and taught all these great things, but I remember when I was in college, I was griping and complaining, and there was hard times, and and there was rejection from, uh, from uh, these girls that I would ask out and just all those things. And life seemed so tough and so hard. And, and then I remember seminary. I mean, I remember going down the hallway and banging my fist on the hallway saying, I can't get all this work done. I can't do that. But, you know, now, oh, 
those were, those were the great days, right? We look at them through rose-colored glasses. We all tend to look to the past through rose-colored glasses, and over time, the glory days become more glorious than they really were, all right? And the, and, and the few people who were in their 70s and 80s on that day when Haggai spoke, they could still remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, but they were forgetting something, that that temple that they remembered was not as glorious as when David and Solomon had first built it. Because the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians had already been uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, uh, the gold and the silver that David had collected and Solomon had put in that temple had already been stripped and given to opposing forces to buy off more time for Jerusalem to survive. If you go back, or those of you that have just been reading through the Bible in nine days, we just read about this. These kings are, are prying gold off of door jams. The, the floor was gold, and they're ripping it up. They're taking all the articles, and they're giving, him, giving them to these Gentile powers to buy time and buy off. Here's my point. When that temple was destroyed, and the temple that those people remembered wasn't as glorious as they were making it out to be. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to idealize and glorify the past. And we're the same way, aren't we? We look at the past, our past, the past of our church, past of our relationships, whatever past you're looking at, and we tend to idealize it and forget that it was as imperfect as the present. The past was as imperfect as the present. We can look at past patterns of revival in church history. And we can look at great times in ministry, local church ministry, even here at our church. And we can wish that today was like yesterday. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as one thing happens. If you look at the past and it inspires you to serve in the present with the same diligence that you did in the past, then look at the past all you want because it inspires you to do what you ought to do in the present. But when looking at the past paralyzes you and causes you to try to live in that past and to glorify that past and share the blessing of your grumbling with others about how the present isn't like the past and discourages those who are at work, then that's a bad thing. In fact, I will say this. The truth is, God's pattern in the past may not be his pattern for the present. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say it will not be. God's pattern in the past will not be the pattern in the present. And let me tell you why. Because God rarely, if ever, performs the same miracle in the same way another time, at, you know, twice, more than once. Think about Jesus when he healed two blind men. Now, if I heal two blind men, I do it the same way every time. But I'm not God. And God, he, one time he just says, be healed, and he, he speaks to them. The other time he takes mud and, and puts it in their eyes. Here, right here, the building of the temple. The first temple was built with all this gold, all this silver. Now they're rebuilding. Go cut down some wood and get at it. God rarely does the same thing in the same way more than once. You see, right now as they're building the temple, 
rebuilding it. The time is different. The circumstances are different. The people are different. The leaders are different. The resources are different. And the need is different. But here's the good news. The God who never changes in his character does change how he works when circumstances change. And he still accomplishes his unchanging purpose. His character remains the same. His purpose remains the same. But he adapts to the present circumstances. And so should we. We have to release the past because we tend to glorify it and we tend to make it greater than it really was. But here's the third way that the past can get in our way. And here's the key. When we fail to learn from the past to make a better future. The past gets in our way when we fail to learn from it to make (coughs) a better future. Now, here's the key to releasing the past. We have to learn from it and not try to live in it. Did you get that? The way you release the past is you look at it, you learn from it, but you don't try to live in it. You don't try to get back to it. You take the lessons from it and you move forward into the future that God has for you. See, the problem, the leaders and the people of the return remnant were not learning from their past. They were wanting to go back and live in it. The problem was that they were not learning what they should have from the previous week of living in these tents. See, they had lived in these tents in order to look at the past. But they weren't supposed to go back there and try to live in it. They were supposed to learn from it as they rebuilt the temple in the present. You see, they they looked at the past and thought, we've got to have Solomon's gold to rebuild the temple. And God said, you don't need Solomon's gold. You need Solomon's God. That's what you need. Look back and realize that I'm the same God who provided for Solomon, and I will provide for you. You see, they needed to learn where Solomon's glory and wealth had come from. It had come from a humble request for wisdom in leading God's people. They could ask for that. You and I can ask for that. They needed to learn how the children of Israel were delivered out of bondage in Egypt and how they made their way through the wilderness for 40 years without any food, without any water. You talk about no resources. They had no resources. They were supposed to look back and say, my God will supply my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. They needed to learn the reason why the temple had been destroyed in the first place was because the people were more focused on the things of the world than the things of God. See, they were bemoaning that the temple wasn't there, but they were forgetting the lesson of why it wasn't there. It wasn't there because in the past, they didn't focus on God. And guess what the people were doing again? They weren't focusing on God. God doesn't need a fancy building for true worship to take place. True worship is not about how fancy the building is, but about how pure are the hearts of the worshipers inside of it. That was the lesson. You, they didn't need, and we do not need, a big, fancy church that looks like a mall in order to worship the one true God. What we need are, is people with pure hearts whose priority is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ seven days a week and be a living temple among the lost that are out there. Now, that doesn't mean we don't remodel. You know, I'm not undermining our remodeling. We don't. You, you take 
just like them, they were supposed to cut those wood and they were supposed to make the most beautiful temple they could with the resources that God was providing. We are to remodel and make this building the most beautiful it can because we serve God Almighty. But the bigger issue is you can have a beautiful building and not have pure hearts of worship. You know, it's interesting that this very temple that they were supposed to be building did get built. In four years, they got it built. Haggai's uh, ministry was successful. And guess what temple that was? Don't forget, the temple they're building became to be known as Herod's temple, which is the temple who worshipped that. Remember? Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ worshipped in the temple that they were supposed to be building. But do you remember when he worshipped in that temple? And the most impressive thing, <coughs> it was a beautiful, impressive temple. It became a glorious thing, but the people had to work to rebuild it. But what Jesus was impressed with, and, and Bruce, uh, Pastor Bruce preached on this a couple weeks ago, was a, a, a widow lady who dropped two cents in. He didn't go around going, wow, look at this beautiful building. Look at this. Oh, this is so impressive. Look at all these rich people. Look at all this, all this activity and ministry. He saw a, a little widow lady drop in two cents, and he said, now that's what makes my temple beautiful. In fact, he cleared out the temple, didn't he? He cleansed the temple of those whose hearts were hypocritical and greedy and thieves. In fact, in uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, one day the disciples were walking out of this temple, this beautiful temple that finally got built, and they said, Lord, Master, look at these beautiful stones. Isn't this a beautiful building? And here's what Jesus said, and it rocked him. He said, one day, not one stone will lie on another stone. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it back up. And yet what he spoke of was the temple of his body, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And his point was this, guys, to the disciples. And his point was the same thing that Haggai is trying to get across and that God is trying to get across with us, is don't compare our church to other churches, to other buildings, to other ministries. If you've been faithfully serving in this church and you're not seeing a lot of results and you feel like what you're doing is insignificant, well, what you've got to do is get your eyes off of the externals and onto the God that you serve. And like that little widow, you give all that you've got. And you trust God with a pure heart to serve Him and realize <coughs> that God is not impressed with externals. He's looking at the inside. He's looking at the hearts of the worshipers. Now, if we're not careful, we'll try to live in the past or live in someone else's life instead of our own. We look at the results of others. We look at the fruit of their ministry or the size of their church. And we make false comparisons to our own work, and we think that the effort is not just worth is not worth it. But if God has called you here, and that's critical, if God has placed you here, and He's gifted you to work, and if you're a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift, then learn from the past, release it, so you can recommit to doing the work of God in the present. And that's the second step. If if the best is yet to come then we've got a number two, recommit to the present. You see, the reason we release the past is so that we can get busy in the present. Now, look at verses 4 through 5. It begins with this critical phrase, yet now, yet now. 
Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work. I'd circle that word, work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You know what he's saying? Recommit to what you started less than four weeks earlier, and you're already waffling. Recommit to the present. Now, notice these words. He says, yet now. I want you to see, in verse 3, God agrees with the reality of the past. He says, look, I know what the past was, and I know what the present looks like, and it's nothing. If you, that's the reality. God doesn't deny reality. And we don't ask one another to deny reality. The past was greater. The past was more glorious. But notice what God says, yet now. And some versions say, but now. One even says, even so. And basically what he's saying is, in, reli- in light of the reality, recommit to the present. Recommit to the present. So I want you to feel the force of those words from the Lord, but now. But now. Recommit. Now, once you've released the past, you're ready to recommit to the present. Now, let's look at the three clear commands to recommit. There's three. They're very clear. The first one is be strong, and it's listed three times. Recommit this morning to being strong in the Lord. He says it once to Zerubbabel, the leader, once to Joshua, the spiritual leader, and once to the remnant of all the people. Now, why do they need to be strong? Because commitment to God is an inside job. It's an inside job. Before you can get busy in the work, we have to make sure our heart is strong in the Lord. Moses said the same thing to Joshua before he conquered the promised land. He said it three times in that famous passage, Joshua 1, 6 through 9. It starts like this, Be strong and good courage, for to this people (coughs) you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe according to to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left, that you may prosper. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. And he goes on, you'll observe it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And he says it one more time. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and good courage. Do not be afraid. Same thing Haggai said. Nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord... Your God is with you wherever you go. It's almost exactly what Haggai is saying. Moses said it to Joshua when they conquered the promised land. You see, Moses' purpose was to encourage the heart of Joshua so that he would face the task and then finish the task. And that's what we need to do with one another. Amen? We need to get in each other's faces and we need to encourage the hearts of one another and say, look, we got to face it and then we got to finish it. And we got to link arms, and we got to do it together. Our leaders have to commit to it. Our teachers have to commit to it. All of us have to be strong in the Lord. You know what? David said the exact same thing to Solomon as he faced the work of building the temple the first time. Turn your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 22. 
First Chronicles 22. We're doing a little sword drill here in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 22, <coughs> verse 13. And here's what he says. Then David is speaking to Solomon. And he says, then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. And here's what he says. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. But turn, turn, turn forward to chapter 28. Turn to chapter 28. And here's David speaking to his son. I think I got that uh, right here. David speaking to his son. Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20. You can hear Haggai. You can hear verses 4 through 5. Listen at verse 20. And David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Do you see what's happening? He's saying, look, if you want to look to the past, then learn from it and realize that David said the same thing to Solomon, that God is saying to you, it's not about external resources. It's about internal recommitment. It's about recognizing that God's presence, God's power, God's promises are here with us right now in the present, and that's where our focus should be. So the first command is to be strong. We have ground to take. We have God's temple to build. We need to be strong individually and corporately. He says the same thing to all of them. Command number two, recommit to doing the work. I love this. He just says, and work. In fact, I've got my chapter so marked up, you can miss that little four-letter word. Sometimes it's a it's a, it is a four-letter word to some of us. Work, work. Look at what he says. He says all these things, and he says, and work. One simple word. The word means to act, to take action, to get moving. Uh, if you've read uh, Larry the Cable Guy's paraphrase of this passage, God is saying, what? Get her done. Get her done. For my sake, get it done. And I'm telling you, God is saying that to us this morning. He's saying, get it done. Strengthen your hearts and get to work. God had stirred their spirit up in verse 14 of chapter 1, and now he was calling them to strengthen their hearts and recommit to actually doing the work. And then command number three, recommit to not being afraid. I've said this before and I'm convinced of it, 20 years of ministry, of trying to recruit and enlist lay people in ministry. And the, I think the number one reason, uh, next to selfish, and you got selfishness, and just, I want to do my thing. But it's fear. It's fear. You challenge people, hey, I can see you doing that, and they say, well, well what happens if I don't do it right? That's fear. What happens uh, if I mess up? That's fear. What if I fail? That's fear. What if it's not good enough? That's fear. What if I quit and I don't last? That's fear. And God has one thing to say to you and me this morning, because I have fears about serving him too. And he has one thing to say with, to us. It's the same thing he said to them. I am 
with you. I am with you. I, God Almighty, I, ruler of heaven and earth, I, who have all power to equip you and make you the man or woman that I want you to be, I am with you. And that was the lesson from the past that they were to remember. Well, there's more we can get here, but let me give you three convincing reasons to recommit. I mean, there's the commands. They're very simple. Be strong, get to work, get her done, and don't fear. I am with you. But what are the three reasons, three convincing reasons to recommit? They're found in verses 4 through 5, and I'll just give them to you quickly. First, reason number one is God's present presence is with us as the Almighty. Hey, if you got Him on your side, go for it. God's presence is with us as the Almighty. Reason number two, God's promises to us in His Word. God's promises to us. He says, look, you've got the covenant that I made with you in Egypt, that I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. You've got the promise of His Word. And then number three, you've got God's power in us by His Spirit. He says, my Spirit remains among you. You can't see the fire. You can't see the Shekinah. There's no Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because you don't need those things. My Spirit, which blows wherever it wants, and you don't see it coming and you don't see it going, it is my Spirit is among you. Now, here's what they should have learned from those seven days of the tabernacle, that God's presence was still with them in the present, just like He was. That God's promises were still true to them, just as He had promised in the past. That God's power was still among them by His Spirit, and His Spirit was among them. And you know how they knew that? Because Haggai was speaking prophecy in the power of the Spirit. But you know what? All of this is true of us today, but even more so. Because we live in the New Covenant, and I want you to think through this. God's presence is with us because God, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. And before He left this planet, the last words that He said to us was, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You know what He just said? I'm God Almighty. And then He says, Go make disciples. And then He says, Lo, I am with you. What? Always even to the end of the age. We have a greater promise of God's presence than they ever had. God's promises are ours in the Bible. Do you realize all the promises they had was the Old Testament, and it, wasn't even, it was almost finished. Malachi was going to finish it up. We now have the old and the new. We have more promises than they ever had, and Paul says in Corinthians, every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. We've got better promises. And we've got God's power in a way that they did not have. God's power was among them, but we have God's power dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses. Well, God's not finished speaking to us yet. The best is yet to come when we release the past, when we recommit to the present, and thirdly, when we refocus on the future refocus on the future. Now, you look at verses 6 through 9, and there, there's some interesting things in there. God's going to shake heaven and earth. God's going to shake the land and the, and the sea. God's going to shake all the nations 
and they will come and bring the desired things. And I will fill this temple with a glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let me just say two things, because actually chapter 4, uh, the, or the, the fourth message of Haggai is going to address this again. But I just want to make two points, and they're there in your notes. First of all, the Lord Almighty will shake the nations to provide the glory for His temple. And here's what God's trying to say to him, especially in verse 8. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. You know what he's trying to say? He's trying to say, look, if I want gold in this temple, I will get gold for this temple. If I want more silver in this temple, then I will get silver for this temple because it's all mine and all I have to do is shake the nations like I'm shaking a money tree and the riches will flow into my temple. And he did. He shook Cyrus and he paid for the rebuilding. He shook Darius, and he said, yeah, we need to pay for this. He, shake, he shook Artaxerxes, and then hundreds of years later, he shook Herod, and Herod built and paid for that temple to be greater than even Solomon's temple. You see, God right now is shaking nations in Tunisia, in Egypt, and he's shaking the nations. And CNN doesn't figure it out, and Fox can't figure it out, because God is shaking the nations to fulfill His purposes. And you know what we should be seeing as we see the news, and we see the nations being shook? We should say, God's getting ready for His glorious second coming, and He's coming for that glorious temple, and we're going to be a part of that temple, and the nations of the earth are going to be a part of that temple. We better get her done now. Because God is shaking, shaking the nations. He says, that temple, the temple that you're building now that looks so insignificant is going to have a greater glory. And that came true because Jesus Christ, the God of glory, entered that temple. And he entered that temple as an eight-day-old baby. He entered that temple as a 13-year-old scrawny kid asking questions of the high priest. He entered that temple as a 30-year-old man, and he taught, and he healed, and he performed miracles, and he debated the Pharisees, and ultimately he said, the temple is my body, and he went to the cross, he rose from the dead, and now he's building his temple, the church, and the church is more glorious than any building. That temple that they were so concerned about building is in ruins today. But the church, the temple of Jesus Christ is being built. And it's being built with the peoples and the nations of the world. And our ministry, no matter how insignificant and no matter how seemingly, uh, it just doesn't seem to make an impact to you maybe, but we are being used of God to prepare for this glorious future. The one thing... Uh, <coughs> the, the second point is that the Lord Almighty will literally keep His promise to fulfill His temple with glory in stages. And I guess I just want to close with this. In Revelation 21, I've tried to share with you a little bit of that glorious future and how indeed the building they built was more glorious because the Lord Jesus Christ was in it. But I want to take you to Revelation 21. And I want you to see what happens ultimately to the temple. In Revelation 21, I want you to see verses 22 through 27. Verses 22 through 27. And here's what he says. 
And here is a little bit of what Haggai is pointing them to. But I saw no temple in it. This is the new heavens and the new earth. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and their honor into it. That's exactly what Haggai predicted. But there shall be no means, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Folks, here's the bottom line. The best is yet to come. The question is, are you ready to get her done? And if you are, then realize this. I want to ask you this morning, what do you need to release from the past to get her done in the present? What do you need to let go this morning at this altar? What do you need to recommit to that you've drifted away from? And what is it that you need to refocus on on God's glorious future and get our eyes off of our bank accounts, off of our agendas, off of our schedules, and on to the glorious future because the best is yet to come. With your heads bowed, I want to ask you today, what do you need to let go of? I just cannot believe from God's word that God isn't speaking to us and that God doesn't want us to let go of some things in the past that we're hanging on to and it's hindering us in the present. And maybe you've drifted away from ministry. Maybe you've dropped out of ministry. You, you were serving, you were active, and you need to recommit. You need to strengthen your heart and recommit this morning. And maybe we need to get our eyes on the glory of the coming new creation and the glorious work that Christ is doing. Father, I pray that uh, you would work in our hearts and we would respond. As Zach sings, Lord, that we could use this altar as a place to release, recommit, and refocus. If you'd all stand as Zach uh, sings. Let's just, let's just give it to the Lord and use this time. You can come here and pray. I'd gladly pray with you. Unto the King eternal, unto the 